Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Once upon a time, there was Penguin, there was Puffin, and there was Pelican. This May, Pelican's back. What was this iconically blue bird all about? What did it publish? And most importantly, why do we need it today? Here to tell us why we're bringing back Pelican, the imprint's editor, Laura Stickney. Readers today might be forgiven for asking the question, does the world really need another imprint? Perhaps unsurprisingly, my answer is a resounding yes, but any new publishing endeavor must begin with a particular mission, a sense of its identity, and the belief that there's a gap in the bookshops and online that it can fill. With Pelican, we're lucky to be able to draw on the original imprint's considerable cultural heritage. Founded in 1937, Pelican was the first British publisher of intelligent nonfiction at a low price, a somewhat radical move at the time. And as a result, generations of readers grew up with Pelicans as their first exposure to the intellectual currents of the day. Of course, the imprint's history gives us a lot to live up to, but it provides a legacy that guides our ambition. And many readers hopefully share our great affection for the vintage blue spine paperbacks that are still so ubiquitous in used bookshop shelves today. But history only gets us so far, obviously. What's the gap that Pelican can fill today? It strikes us that there's a widening divide in the culture between academic specialists and the general public. A lot of books in the serious nonfiction category, including many that we publish proudly in Allen Lane, require a substantial time commitment and a certain level of knowledge before readers can crack their spines. These books are, of course, hugely valuable uses of our time, but the new pelicans can almost be thought of as stepping stones. They're for the gaps in your knowledge, for the subject you're interested in, but ignorant about, whether it's architecture or economics or evolution. We like to say these are books for the musician who wants to know more about philosophy or the psychologist who wants to read about physics. The five launch titles we are publishing are all ideal pelicans on two levels. They're terrific introductions since they're accessible and clear but they also force us to think in new ways about their subjects. Hajun Chang makes the case for rethinking economics and shows us why we can't rely on the experts alone. Orlando Figes redefines the traditional scope of the Russian Revolution, and Melissa Lane illuminates the Greek and Roman political ideas that have provided the essential foundation for all political debates since. Robin Dunbar shows us that the real story of human evolution is not stones and bones, but culture and cognition. And Bruce Hood explains what makes us social animals. It will take a few years before we build a critical mass of pelicans that can once again line the shelves in the way that the original imprints thousands of titles did. But our ambition is that, one day soon, readers looking to learn about a new subject will think, what's the pelican for that? Laura Stickney, editor of the Pelican series. But pelicans aren't all about the content, though. They're known for their rich design heritage and they're visually beautiful. Next, here's our in-house designer, Matthew Young, who's been a part of bringing pelicans alive on the page in bookshops and online. It's kind of very daunting initially to to update a brand that has such a great heritage and such a great design heritage. You know, designers, well, not just designers, but lots of people love those those old pelican covers. Um, you know, the kind of they started off with the tri-band ones in the thirties and then they moved on to the the I think it's a Jan Schickold design with the kind of the blue frame in the forties or fifties and then obviously the sixties had these really great 
graphic covers um, and use the sort of marble grid. And I think for me, those were the ones that I thought of uh, before I started working at Penguin. Even you know when when I thought of Pelican, I thought of those great '60s covers that are really striking and really bold, and you know just really distinctive. Um, and then in the '70s, they moved on to some great kind of really clever covers, uh, quite simple and conceptual, some of them. And so there's some great Derek Birdsall covers. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a tough act to follow um, when, you're, when you're redesigning Pelican and bringing it back after it's, it's been away for a little while. Um, and I think we were all really excited when we, when we found out it was coming back. And Jim, who is our art director, um, kind of, I think he initially briefed us on Pelican back in March last year. And we were we were all kind of encouraged to have a go at coming up with some new covers. Or you know, it wasn't just limited to covers, but you know, a new kind of look for Pelican. What what is the the Pelican brand in the twenty first century? You know, here's an opportunity to update it. And you know, it raises some questions: Do we do something completely different, or do we stick very faithfully to to what has gone before and in Pelican's past? Um, but actually, the the Pelican brand. And the, the the look of the Pelican brand has been updated many times over the years. Um, so we we have updated it again for for twenty fourteen, um, and it's you know it's another step in in the evolution of Pelican. Well, I'm looking at the new Pelicans here right now, and I have to say that they're looking really really striking and something that sort of really sticks out in a bookshop. Tell us about the new design. What what has changed? What has stayed the same? Well, they they do stand out in a bookshop. I think I was I was uh, looking at them in Waterstones the other day, and they really stood out amongst all the other covers because all the other covers are kind of they're often really busy, and there's so much going on, and they're all kind of competing for attention. These new Pelican covers are so striking because they're so kind of clean and minimal. If you haven't seen them, it's a very very clean, simple blue cover. It's a really bright blue color. Uh, with some big typography for the title and author and a Pelican logo. And and that's it. It's as simple as that, really. And I suppose, in a way, it really goes back to the original Pelican ethos uh, and the original Pelican covers from the 30s, where it was type only, um, very simple design, very distinctive. We've kept the distinctive Pelican blue. We want it to be really recognisably Pelican. So when you see this typeface and this colour blue, you instantly know that that's a Pelican book rather than any other kind of book. So you mentioned the logo. How did you update that? What what has been done to the logo? Uh, well, just like the covers have been reinvented a few times throughout Pelican's history, the logo has been redrawn a number of times as well. Um, the original logo, I think, was drawn by Edward Young in 1937, and it was kind of updated in the 40s by William Grimmond, I think. Um, and... Actually, if you if you look at old Pelican covers, there's there's quite a few different versions of the logo knocking around. Some of them, uh, especially the early ones, actually look quite. Uh, he look the Pelican looks quite muscly, I think, and kind of. I mean, it's quite a, I suppose, anatomically correct Pelican, but it doesn't look that attractive. Uh, you know, it doesn't look like a really attractive bird in flight. And I think over the years, it's it's been refined slightly. And then, obviously, when we came to to do these new pelicans, there was an opportunity to to redo the logo again. You know, you don't want to just redo it for the sake of it. You you only want to redraw it if if there's a, a good reason to, and if you can if you can make it better, or if you know if it needed updating. And I think perhaps it did. It was 
certainly showing its age, I think, because the last Pelicans we did were in the, the 70s and 80s. Um, so that logo perhaps wouldn't have looked so in keeping with our, with our new covers and everything else uh, about the Pelican brand, uh, the new Pelican for 2014. So actually it was our... Our cover designer Richard Green, who who works with me in the art department, who redrew the the Pelican logo, which is now on all our new Pelican covers. And interestingly, there are actually two different versions of it. So most uh, most logos you only have one version, or you know most book imprints you just have one logo. Uh, for for our Pelicans, we've actually got two versions. There's the Pelican in flight, which is on all our new Pelican covers, and then there's the Pelican standing, um, which is on the spines and the back covers. And again, that's that's something that's been present throughout Pelican's history. There was often a, a flying pelican on the front, but there wasn't enough space for a, a flying pelican with his big wingspan on the spines, so they used a standing version on the spines. And actually, the, the standing version is perhaps more consistent with the penguin logo, which everyone recognises. Um, so when you see the two side by side, the penguin and the pelican, they are recognisably part of the same family. Finally, you've also designed the look of our new website. Why should everyone listening to this podcast go to pelicanbooks.com now? <laughs> what will they find? Um, well, if you go to pelicanbooks.com right now, um, you'll find a really kind of clean, minimal website. Again, it, it, you know, it speaks the same brand language as the, the rest of the, the Pelican brand, the Pelican covers and everything else. Um, you, can, you can read the first chapter of all the books online right now. And it's a great reading experience. It's been designed so that it provides a really great reading experience, regardless of what size screen or what type of device you've got. Matthew Young with that detailed account of the design. Now, finally, to the authors. Pelican Books' first five titles cover everything from the Russian Revolution to economics to human evolution, from five world-leading experts. We fly off to the Bristol Festival of Ideas now to hear the economist Ha Jun Chang. Enjoy. Yeah, I'm Ha Jun Chang. I'm an economist who tries to make economics a bit more accessible to the general reader. The latest uh, result of which is uh, this book uh, that she just introduced. You know, I somehow read that uh, Alan Lane got the idea of <clears throat> the Pelican series in the King's Cross uh, station uh, where she saw this woman who was looking for those Pelican books. She was ornithologically challenged and uh, got the uh, Pelicans and Penguins mixed up, but apparently that's uh, where he got the idea. And I came through King's Cross uh, station today uh, uh, because I live in Cambridge, uh, but uh, Pelican really holds a great kind of, uh, place uh, in my uh, intellectual history because, uh, you know, when I was a university student in South Korea back in the early 80s, Pelican was the only imported book that we could possibly, although very rarely, buy because you know, it was a poor country, everything else was so expensive. Well, we pirate copied all of them. <laughs> but occasionally, if you had money, you might buy some pelicans. You know? So I still remember those uh, two, three copies of pelican I had uh, on my bookshelves uh, very proudly. 
and I'm extremely glad to be part of this uh, reincarnation of uh, Pelican. Now, why do we need to learn economics? I mean, that might be a question that many of you have in mind because, you know, economics is difficult, it's technical, it's for the wongs, you know. Why should I, as a kind of ordinary citizen, learn economics? It's boring, it's you know, dry and you know, everything. But I would say that we all need to learn some economics. Well, first of all, you know, economics, or rather the economy, affects everyone. You know, we all have to earn money. We all have to have a job and or get benefits. So, you know, we we are all in this uh, the economic circuit in one way or another. And you have to understand what's going on not just for the greater good, but also to defend yourselves. Yeah? Now, my emphasis on the importance of the economy is almost bordering on Marxist materialism. You know? That's the basis of our existence. I mean, I'm not a Marxist, but in that respect, you know, the economy is uh, the basis of our existence, and you have to understand that. Yeah? Now, I'm not one of those people who believe that everything should justify itself in terms of its economic value. But if that was the case, probably 95% of the people in this room shouldn't exist. Yeah? Because you're all doing useless things yeah, from that point of view. Yeah? School teachers teaching history, you know. Why should you teach history? I mean, the workers that, that, that can only need to the read and count, no, not even count, because this is, uh, there are barcode machines, yeah? So as far as they can do this, they can work, yeah? So why should we teach our children history, geography, music, literature, yeah? I mean, why, did, why are there all these uh, the people wasting their time writing poetry and yeah? uh, doing craft work and I do not yeah, take that position, so don't get me wrong when I yeah, say the economy is important, yeah? Now, Despite this, a lot of people think, you know, economics is for the experts. Eh? But when you think about this, it's very curious because we have very strong opinions on all sorts of things. Iraq, gay marriage, abortion, you know, Ukraine, climate change, you name it, without having any technical expertise to make judgment on that. Yeah? You know, I have a very strong view on that, uh, Iraq, yeah? but I don't have a degree in international relations. I mean, I took one course back in 1983 when I was in second year of my university in international relations. Yeah? So I really cannot have an informed opinion about uh, international politics, but I do have an opinion. Yeah? And I bet it's that, uh, like that for all of you. Yeah? But when it comes to economic issues, people say, oh, no, it's uh, for those clever people in the Bank of England and the Treasury and the International Monetary Fund. But this is wrong. Yeah? We all have to learn some economics if uh, we are going to be a responsible 
citizen in a democracy. You know, people say, oh, you know, I mean, all these uh, economic issues, you know, budget and taxation and you know, industrial policy, these are all technical stuff. Uh, people can just uh, let the professionals uh, deal with it. But if uh, that's uh, how we run the economy, run the society, what's the point of having democracy? Huh? Yeah, might as well just uh, uh, appoint a dictator who will, you know, uh, get the uh, uh, world's best experts, according to the opinions of the, their respective uh, professional, uh, the professional communities, and let them run the show. Hmm? So actually, that uh, understanding economic issues and getting involved in those debates, uh, like you are involved in debate on yeah, Middle Eastern politics or Russia or women bishops or whatever, is really, I would say, A, if not the foundation of democracy. Now, of course, that, that, that economics is very inaccessible because that, that, you know, economists have done a very good job in making it look impossible. <laughs> but uh, I tell you in the book and uh, uh, try to explain uh, that Actually, most of economics is common sense. Huh? And of course, they're made to look difficult with the use of jargons and mathematics, but you can penetrate it yeah, if someone bothers to explain them uh, to you. Yeah? And that's uh, what I'm trying to do in this book. Yeah? I mean, I'm not saying that it's uh, always easygoing. You know, I've done my best to throw in jokes and references to movies and literature and, you know, I mean, yeah, actually I have a lot of those, you know, I have the movie The Matrix, uh, yeah. uh, I have uh, Gone with the Wind, you know, I have uh, The Full Monty, you know, <laughs> The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, quite a few things, uh, but even then it's a bit dry, you know, I mean, but uh, you have to understand, I mean, it's not like, you know, Love and death and betrayal and all these uh, that, 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 all these things uh, that uh, have uh, driven human history. I mean, these are very dry stuff. But you know, I've uh, done my best uh, to make it accessible and try to, I mean, tell you that it's uh, not actually that difficult. Hmm? Now, I'm not going to uh, go into the uh, contents. That, uh, I don't have uh, time, and this is uh, not the place. But uh, I'm going to tell you just uh, one or two things about uh, this book uh, that makes it different from other books on economics. You know, I mean, there are actually a lot of books on economics. Yeah? One is that I try to kind of uh, tell my reader, readers uh, that, that there isn't just one correct economic theory. Yeah? Economics is not a science in the sense of physics or chemistry where you can actually prove or disprove but, uh, that this is more correct, at least if not yeah, absolutely correct, uh, than other theories. But economics is not like that because it's uh, based on many political and ethical assumptions. Eh? So you cannot say that you know, this theory is actually necessarily better. And my view is that what is uh, the right theory 
and I, I in the book I explained that there are at least nine different types of economic theory with three varieties uh, for free market economics alone. Yeah? And I, I uh, try to explain what is the more correct theory, I wouldn't say the correct theory, that uh, depends on the question you're asking and the context that you are looking at it and the political and ethical assumptions you are making. So one theory might be much better at explaining certain things than others. One theory might be better at explaining, say, developing economies rather than mature economies. And another theory might be very good at uh, explaining changes in technologies. Another might be very good at uh, that, uh, making you understand finance better and so on. So that, um, I'm suggesting that you know, we, well, uh, the way I put it there is that we should try not to become the proverbial man with a hammer who sees everything as a nail and then begins to bang everything. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, it's great if it happens to be a nail, but if, uh, it will be a disaster if it's an egg. Yeah? <laughs> so my suggestion is that you should get a Swiss army knife yeah, with a range of tools. Yeah? <laughs> the other difference is uh, that I try to tell you a lot about the real world. You know, I mean, many people have... Uh, this impression that, oh, economics is a number subject. Yeah? Actually, that, uh, most economists don't know many numbers. Eh? No, seriously, I mean, you, you uh, might have a relative who's got an economics degree, grab that person, ask whether he or she knows uh, what the, say, total output of the world economy is, what proportion of that is produced in China or the United States, you know, how long uh, uh, people in different countries work, and they'll have no idea because uh, they are not taught these things. Yeah? But we need to know these facts. Yeah? Because that, uh, what you know about these things uh, can seriously affect uh, the way you judge uh, the, the economy. Yeah? I'll, I'll give you an example, but you know, one important point that I'm uh, trying to make uh, here is that you, know, you, you need to, I mean, realize that uh, so many of economic theory, uh, sorry, economic uh, policy is based on this vague notion of the reality, which actually when you uh, scrut scrutinize it, that uh, doesn't really wash. You know, that, let me give you just uh, one example and then I'll that, that, uh, wind up. You know, in the recent uh, debate on the Eurozone crisis, there's this uh, very influential narrative, mainly coming out of Germany, which argued that Greeks are lazy. These are sponges. You know? We Germans work hard, and these people sponge on us. Yeah? Actually, did you know that, uh, that in terms of working hours, Greece works 30% longer than the Germans? So this is a problem of productivity, not laziness. Yeah? But then when you begin to frame this as a laziness issue, you will say, oh, yeah, Greeks are Greeks, you know, I mean, you cannot do anything about their culture, you know. They'll have to make, that, uh, they'll, they'll have to be made to suffer, you know. You, you get to that, 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 that think in those ways, yeah. But if you realize that this is an issue of productivity, then you begin to think, well, then uh, what kind of, you know, 
reforms that we have to make are to the Greek economy more productive and so on. So you will go down completely different path. Yeah? So in the book, I that, uh, try to give you as much as possible without killing you with numbers. So yes, I, I'm trying to that, uh, give you something completely different, uh, as uh, Monty Python used to say. And I uh, hope uh, you have a chance to flick through my book and uh, well, the, the get to read it and uh, join the, me and others uh, in reclaiming economics uh, for the, yeah, the democratic citizenship. Okay, thank you. Ha Jun Chang, one of the first five Pelican authors talking about economics. The full recording of the Bristol Festival of Ideas can be listened to on SoundCloud. Head to the Penguin Podcast blog for details. And Pelicans are now in stores around the world. Visit pelicanbooks.com to read the first chapters of the first five titles for free. You've been listening to the Penguin Podcast.